Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Standing by the Terry and Ted podcast is sponsored by the UPS Store Canada. Very excited for this episode, so we have to get right to it. Hi, Ted. How you doing? I'm good, Terry. How okay, are you? Okay, very good. <laughs> hey, who's the podcast brought to you by? Who's our title sponsor? Why, it's the UPS Store right. Canada. We got stories to tell because uh, as we're recording this episode, we um, we had a very UPS-y kind of day yesterday. We did, as yep. a matter of fact. We visited the UPS Store on uh, Donkey Shot in uh, Il Perot, and I met the franchisee, Jason Liverman, and Jason's wife, Stacy Friend, and they were uh, quite excited to see us. Yes. We had a nice visit with them. I ate some packing peanuts. Yes, you did. Turns out they're not edible. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make for a good snack while you're watching the hockey game. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we met Grant, the UPS truck driver, while we were there. That's right. Grant was quite excited to meet us. Very exciting. We got the old, uh, I used to listen to you guys when I was on the bus uh, in high school. Hey, old men. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And we also had uh, a nice lunch with... uh, our main supporter and longtime friend, David Drucker, who is the emperor of the UPS Store Canada, he told me yesterday, now over 380 locations. There are so many, he's yeah. lost count. Yeah. He said, yeah, that sounds about yeah, right. I think so. <laughs> yeah. He also said, if you go to the UPS Store website, you can find out how you could become an entrepreneur and an owner of a UPS Store location. Um, they do everything, courier services, packaging services, mailbox rentals, copy services, anything you could possibly need to run a business. Start at the upsstore.ca. A big thank you to the UPS Store Canada for being our title sponsor. Why can't I ever I remember know. that? I don't know. You gap on that every always, time. Eh? Yeah, like profile sponsor. I, yeah, well, you're pretty old. That's true. Yeah. yeah. I was just talking about that with our guest. Um, our guest is um, um, well-known if, uh, if you read Sports Illustrated or you've ever watched TSN or you've listened to CJ, CJD or TSN um, or um, read a newspaper column in the last 20 years, um, the esteemed Mike Farber has agreed to come and sit with us, knuckleheads. Michael, thank you for agreeing to do this. <laughs> well, it's great fun because we used to do this many yeah, years that's ago. That's true. Yeah, on a daily true. basis, yeah. Monday to Friday. Before we get started, I would like you to, and this is hard to do, please tell us the three greatest sounds in sports. I loved this. You told me this 10 minutes ago in the green room. The greatest sound in sports is the silence in an Olympic stadium, 80,000 people, pin drop, before the gun of the men's 100 meters. I'm doing silence now. Mm -hmm. Did you hear that? I got that. How long does that silence last normally? Probably eight seconds. And it feels like a minute and a half? Dead quiet. And so many people being that quiet. The second greatest sound is the sound in an arena as the fighters come out for a heavyweight boxing match as they walk up 
the aisle and into uh, the what was used to be when I was covering it, smoke-filled arenas. And the the noise, the sense of anticipation, you could hear it. And the third greatest sound, to my mind, and can I make this noise? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that was the sound of people running to their seats. Not, not running to their seats, running to their standing location in the Montreal Forum. When they opened the gates, there was standing room. Right, really right behind the press box. And people, when the gates opened, I believe it was an hour before puck drop, people would sprint to their standing locations and you could hear the stampede. And uh, it was lovely. Did you have to jockey for position if you had a standing room ticket? Do you remember, Michael? Yeah, you had to find your spot. And yeah. that's why people sprinted up the stairs at the Forum, yeah. which, of course, has been gone what, a quarter of a century now, yeah. more. More, yeah. Wow. In 96, they closed it down. Were there ever fisticuffs, or was there a... It was there. What a, did you have to do when you peed? Like, yeah. if you went to the was wash? there Was there decorum as stampedes yeah. go? No like, did ever, everyone respect everyone else's space, or...? Yeah, well, Chris Nyland was on the ice, so you would <laughs> you know, they could kind of bring him up, and uh, if things got out of hand, yeah. I mean, this is people ran to their spots, and they were regulars. You would recognize them. Right. right. That's a Michael and I were saying, oftentimes, whether you're on a television show or a radio show, um, oftentimes some of the best conversations are in the green room before you turn the microphones on. And I loved that story you were telling, Michael, and I thought we would we would share it because I I, it never dawned on me that silence. You know, I I don't watch a lot of track and field, but the way you described it, I can I I can see it, picture it in my head. How many Olympic men's 100 meters have you covered live, Mike? That would be eight. Wow. Uh, I covered 18 Olympic Games, 10 winters, eight summers. So uh, not as many as Richard Garneau, I think, did 20 or 21. But 18, starting with uh, Lake Placid, I missed Moscow in 1980. A lot of people did. (laughs) Yeah, especially (laughs) the Canadian athletes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so uh, I became a ring head, as they call people who write about the Olympics. Is there one 100-meter race that stands out for you? Yeah, that would be Seoul, 1988, Ben Johnson. Johnson. Actually, I I sneaked out of my seat in the press tribune and walked down right to the rail in the stands, and it was about 85 meters from the start of the race. And I could see Johnson as he turned to look for Carl Lewis and didn't see him. And you could see this peaceful look cross Ben Johnson's face. And then you looked at the time, 979. No one had ever run that fast. Wow. And it was, it was thrilling. I mean, this was what the Olympics were. You know, 10 seconds. I mean, it was the most thrilling 10 seconds of my life, no matter what my wife says. You mentioned fights, Michael. How many fights did you cover? And what what was the most memorable fight you ever saw live? That 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 must be... I've never seen a fight live. It must be something. Well, I was lucky enough to cover Ali a couple wow. times. Wow, wow. Uh, I covered Ali, 
uh, in his second fight against Spinks in New Orleans, and that would have been September of 78 when he won back the title. And I got to see him again in his last fight against a Canadian, Trevor Burbick, and that was in the Bahamas where everything was just an absolute mess and it wasn't clear that the fight was going to go on because Burbick didn't think he was going to get paid. The fight was actually in a farmer's field where they'd put up Jeez. temporary stands. and So the card is about to begin. There were some fights on the undercard. And they realized that there was no ring bell. So someone was dispatched to a nearby field and took the bell off a cow <laughs> and brought it back, and that was the ring bell. I mean, theoretically, that fight could have won the Nobel Prize, <laughs> uh, but fortunately, uh, there was a That's bell. That's even better than the yeah, 10 seconds yeah. joke. I like that. All your best material yeah. at the front of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> What was it that uh, Rip Torn's character said to um, Hank? Um, oh, yeah. Hey, now, yeah. Hank Kingsley, was yeah. it? Yeah. Hank, you don't open with... <laughs> no. Uh, He's, Hank, you open with a showstopper. Show yeah. Never open with a showstopper. Show yeah. <laughs> Did you ever get to meet Ali, Michael? Yeah. Yeah, I was lucky because I was working in a paper in northern New Jersey, the record, quite a really good paper in Hackensack, New Jersey. And Ali used to train in Deer Lake, Pennsylvania, and I kind of became the Ali writer. So I'd go down to his training camp wow. before, as he was getting prepared. And he was funny. He was gregarious. Uh, he was delightful. And I remember after losing to Trevor Burbick, and I think this was 81 in the Bahamas, and I had pretty much stayed up all night talking to some Swedish writers who'd come over and now Ali, it's maybe 10 in the morning, shows up at the hotel for a post-match press conference. And he says, I will return. And there's a gasp, a literal gasp from maybe the 50 writers in that room. To Los Angeles. <laughs> and everyone, whew, well, thank goodness, because it was clear Ali had nothing left. How old was he at that point, Mike? Do you remember? Um, I 81? don't. Late thirties. Late thirties, I, I would think. Wow. And again, I didn't see him after that until the opening ceremonies of the '96 Olympics in Atlanta, where he lit the torch. Right. And was he quite ill at that point? You could see the Parkinson's. Yeah, yeah it was. Uh, yeah, it was quite disturbing, but it was also quite inspiring as well. It was yeah. quite moving. Yeah, I remember that night well. You mentioned New Jersey, um, Michael, and I said, when well, we're talking about what we were going to talk about, and I said, I'd like you to tell the story of you're a longtime Montrealer now, um, associated with hockey for many, many years, and the Gazette, of course, for many, many years, and Sports Illustrated. How Talk to me about the journey of how you ended up in Montreal and becoming, I know just recently, really, relatively speaking, a Canadian citizen. Yeah, six years how, ago. How did, how did it all transpire? You, you, you were born in New Jersey, raised in New Jersey, wrote in New Jersey, went to Rutgers. Yeah, um, met my wife uh, where 
all Quebecers go, which was Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tale as old as time, eh? Yeah, a guy absolutely. from somewhere else yeah. meets a Montreal, Montreal girl and moves here. Yeah. And sometimes, uh, I don't know if you guys have noticed that um, a lot of the women here, they're like Guinness. They don't travel especially well. <laughs> And to her credit, she didn't much care for New Jersey. She came down there, and I said, all right, I'll try to get a job in Montreal. And I wrote to the Montreal Gazette, and this would have been in 78, and I wrote to the Montreal Star, and the Star sports editor wrote back, we're on strike, you idiot, and there's, you know, we'll be on strike seemingly forever. And that, of course, was Red Fisher, who later became <laughs> quite an important part of my life. Uh, and I also got a note from the Gazette. I had sent some clips, and they said, yeah, when can you start? And that was October of 78, and I had to think about it. You know, I'd been to Expo 67, and that was it, right? And I actually had been here once. I was working in tennis, and they had a world uh, WCT doubles championship at the Maurice Richard Arena. So that was the second time I'd been to Montreal. So uh, I thought about it and finally agreed. And then it took six months to get in the country because Canada actually turned me down because the Gazette had to prove I wasn't taking a job from a Canadian. Oh, yeah. We got in on appeal. I think Lloyd Axworthy was the immigration minister and somehow we got in. So let me tell you about the day I actually immigrated to Canada, which would have been in April of 79. I drove up, went through Plattsburgh, and got to the border, and the presented my paperwork, and you're just fearful you've got something wrong, that you didn't bring the right paper, or this was not right. And apparently it was right, but it took them quite a while to get to it because it was the start of the playoffs. And there was a fight that had gone on, one of these great fights that you would end up tacking the last minute onto the next period because there was just so much mayhem on the ice. So until that was all taken care of, they wouldn't even look at me. So you arrived during the game? During the game. It was in the evening, and it wasn't the Canadians. 79 playoffs? It wasn't, it wasn't even Canadians. a Canadians game? No, it was just, oh. I can't remember who they were. <laughs> so 45 minutes later, we worked through all this, and um, I'm in. And uh, what the guy said was, um, you know, you're going the wrong way. This was an immigration official because... A year later, there was the referendum, Sovereignty Association. Oh, God, that's right. 80, and so this, a Canadian immigration official was telling me, you're making a mistake. Wow. Bienvenue, Canada. <laughs> wow. And as it turns out, I didn't make a mistake. Uh, I've had a great life here. I've become a Canadian citizen. I kicked the tires on this country for a good long while as a landed immigrant. Uh, but here I am, it's home. That's quite a story. And it's interesting how hockey sort of intersected your, your crossing of the border was a, kind of an indication of things to come, maybe. Well, when I, when I got to the Gazette, I was kind of the baseball guy or a baseball guy because I'd covered the Yankees for the Bergen record. And 
in 77 and 78 or parts or most of those seasons. So the Expo 79, that was a party. And that was their breakthrough year, eh? That was the first year that they were really a strong competitive. Yeah, 79 was great. And, you know, they were the Valdery Valderai Expos. You couldn't have more fun than going to the ballpark here. And it's distant for a lot of people. But this was, at that time, a baseball town. 79 was the last Stanley Cup championship for a while here at the end of uh, the run of four straight. The the too many men game against Boston and then the final against the Rangers. Well, then it was the Expos time. And that was the summer that Rusty Staub came back to 60,000 people at the Olympic Stadium. It It was a great time to write about baseball. So while I did some hockey, I was writing a lot about baseball, too. Did you always want to be a writer, Michael? I can't wire a house. Uh, I have very few skills, Terry. I mean, it's embarrassing to say. Um, it was about storytelling. Yeah. I mean, if you grow up fascinated by stories, by reading, writing is the end product of that. And so at university, I did study journalism, but I had other interests. And and a friend of mine, I think the greatest compliment I've ever received was from a friend of mine who said, you are the poster boy for a liberal arts education. That, you know, you've taken all these things and kind of synthesized it and you're able to write about it or redirect it and other things. So we talk about specialization and we see that in all kinds of fields. Says, but you kind of were the last liberal arts guy who said, "Gee, this is worthwhile, and you can take it into other places." Wow! Have you written a lot about things outside of sports, Mike? The unfortunate city column at the Montreal Gazette. Uh, unfortunate. unfortunate. <laughs> it was. It was, and it was ninety-five percent my fault, and five percent of the Gazette's fault, because I was my French was really poor at the time. I'd studied German in school, and whatever French I'd picked up was on the fly here. And so I'm trying to do a city column in a city where I don't really speak the language very well. And my heart wasn't in it, and I had to do it five days a week. I mean, you guys, which was insane. That's where the 5% comes from. I mean, it just couldn't be done. It couldn't be done well. Uh, maybe I did some good columns in that three-and-a-half-year period. I did it to prove to myself I could. Um, I finished in February of 88, having proved to myself I couldn't. (laughs) And was that your decision? Did you go to them and say, I've had enough of this? Yeah, I don't remember quite how it came down, but the Olympics were in Calgary and they wanted me to cover it. And that seemed like a perfect time. And the beauty of that was I had a renewed interest and love for sports, having not done not almost none of it for a three-and-a-half-year period. So you stepping away from it, it was made good. you miss it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was great for me, Terry, uh, just not to have done it. And it renewed 
appreciation uh, for what I have. I mean, the problem with writing a city column is it's life is unscheduled. Yeah, sports is scheduled. Yeah, you didn't know what to write. Well, the Expos are playing, the Canadians are playing, or this is happening. Uh, every day, I had to kind of you know, rush around or stir the pot and see what came up to do a city column. And that's why I consider it unfortunate. In the early days, it sounds like you were quite young when you were covering the Yankees and spending time watching Ali train. Did you have moments back then of, holy shit, I'm covering the Yankees? I mean, that's that's a pretty big deal for a young man, is it not? Uh, no, I had the feeling is, oh, my God, I'm getting my brains beat in by better reporters. <laughs> okay. And in New York, that's that yeah. was true. I just, oh, God, I hope I didn't miss something. And I did. Um, there, there was a shortstop named Fred Stanley. Uh, played for the Expos for a while. His nickname was Chicken. Uh, I can't remember why his nickname was Chicken, That's but it an, was. an unfortunate nickname. Uh, I think his ankles reminded, his skinny <laughs> ankles. I, I don't quite remember. Chicken feet. But I, I, knew, I knew Fred from... Um, you know, I, I wouldn't. I, I got not friendly with him, but I developed a relationship with him, and we worked out a deal. And this is terrible to say, that he would tip me to stuff, but on off days, I would write stories about what a ba- valuable backup shortstop he is, <laughs> which kind of worked the first time, but then there was another off day a few weeks later, and I wrote. When amounted to the same story, and the desk says, why are you writing another story about this guy? I said, oh, I don't know. He's a very valuable shortstop. You need second-tier shortstops if you're going to win the World Series. But he was the guy that I used to kind of keep me in the loop because there was a lot of stuff going on. Uh, Reggie Jackson, of course, played for those teams. And one day Reggie called me over and said he had read something that I'd written and he didn't like it. He said, I thought you were smart. I said, what do you mean? And it involved Ken Holtzman, who was a left-handed pitcher and quite a good one in his day, who Billy Martin absolutely hated, despised him, and essentially buried him and didn't start him for 21 days and then threw him into a game, and predictably Holtzman was knocked out in the third inning or whatever. And I, being the inveterate, smart guy, wise Alec, uh, I wrote something like, oh, you know, Holtzman's obviously not good on 21 days rest, ha, ha, ha. (laughs) And Reggie said, well, you know the situation. You know, why would you make a cheap joke at Holtzman's expense? And he says, be smarter. And I said, yeah, you're right. So I've tried to be fair and haven't always been probably, but, you know, it was Reggie Jackson who taught me that life lesson. Wow. Was that, um, would you say it was a, a pretty good university to be surrounded by legendary New York reporters? Yeah. yeah I learned a lot. I and, bet. And, you know, probably failed most of the exams. But got got here, and I you know I was lucky to get here because uh, I, I had some experience under my belt. And I, you know, working with Red, 
Fisher was great because it gave me an entree. Because, oh, you know, like chicks, oh, I'm with the band. Well, <laughs> me, I'm with Red. Yeah. So, you know, that would help. And uh, Gordy Howe came back to the National Hockey League with the Hartford Whalers. And I went down to do a feature on him. I didn't know Gordy. This would have been in the winter of 1979-80. I didn't know Gordy. I'd never met him. But it was okay because I was working for Red Fisher in his paper. You remember Pilgrim Airlines? Yeah. Uh, no, that yeah. sh- short-lived airline. No, no reason to, <laughs> yeah. but it flew out of Hartfield's, uh, Hartford Springfield. And at the time... Uh, NHL teams flew commercially. So I'm down doing a story on Gordy, and the Hartford Whalers have a game in Philly and the, the next day, and that night, late afternoon, they're flying to Philly, and um, on this 40-seat, 40-seater, I get bumped. So I can't go down with the team, and I'm supposed to talk to Gordy whenever. So... Gordy says, oh, wait a minute, I saw another flight to Philly in two and a half hours. I'll get off with you. So I walk down the aisle of the plane. Gordy follows me. And for two and a half hours, there's my interview in the Hartford Springfield Airport because that's who Gordy Howe was. Wow. And because I had an in. Can you imagine, Ted, anyone doing that today? No, sir. No. No, I, um, I, I've heard many like stories about Gordy Howe, the kindness and and decency. Uh, he was at a. I I sent my father played hockey well into his eighties, and I sent my dad one year as a birthday present to one of those camps, fantasy camp, fantasy camps. And he said he said I have a picture of him sitting in the dressing room next to Gordy Howe on the on the bench, and and my father, who you know these were his idols was completely taken with Howe's kindness and decency and the way he treated his fans. Different on the ice, of course, yeah. competitor, as, as everybody knows. Was was Red Fisher, I, you know, he's such a legendary figure in, in uh, sports journalism and even in Canadians lore, Montreal Canadiens lore. Was he a good teacher? Was he as good a teacher as I think, Michael? Well, our styles were so very different. Right, yes. So there wasn't anything that I could learn really from him as a writer because we wrote differently. So he had no influence on me in that regard. But his advice was spectacular. He always knew the right thing to say and would push me in the right directions. So when you're a newspaper columnist, you develop a voice, but it takes a while. And you take from various influences, and then you synthesize it. And one day you realize it's your own voice. And he allowed me to explore that without influencing the way I went about writing. And and everyone does it a little bit differently. So... Uh, that's where Red figured in my life. Did you have influences? Oh, yeah. Columnists or, or oh. reporters? Oh, sure. Starting with Robert Lipsight and going back to Muhammad Ali, Robert Lipsight at the New York Times, who lived in Bergen County and was 
quite, quite helpful and would just drop me a note once in a while of encouragement. And even later on, a man who became my colleague, Lee Montville, who opened my eyes to the whole notion of creativity and breaking out of the box once in a while. He was certainly very important uh, to me. Um, there are other writers like Bill Knack, William Knack, who again became a colleague at Sports Illustrated. Yeah, so I, I've learned a lot from a lot of people. From competing writers as well? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're, you're always looking for something. You guys, I mean, you've taken things from other sure, broadcasters absolutely. and saying, okay, I love the way this guy does that beat mm. or that joke or that observation or how he weaves something in. I mean, you, you guys have had people you looked up to, right? For sure, absolutely. Did, did, you, ever, did you ever read a column and go, oh, Jesus, I'll never be able to write a column this good? <laughs> Perfect, Terry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is yeah. what I tell young writers. Then you'll look at that and say, oh, I'll never be able yeah. to write like fill in the blank. And if you keep doing it and you get better and better and you wake up five, ten years later and you say, yeah. I can do it. I can do it. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you work at your craft. How much has the change in the landscape of the business affected your ability or opportunities to mentor young well, I, I've helped out at TSN a little bit. I do some tutorials when asked. Um, I'm happy to do it. Uh, I've, I've pointed out some things to younger writers, but they have to want to do it. And But who's writing there, and what are they writing besides sportscasts? Well, on the website. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, they do, do they have things. columnists and essayists on their website among <sighs> the younger they, they generation? Do. Um, they do. And it's spasmodic how often they, they want to do it and how important it is because I mean, these are essentially broadcast medium. But I think um, you still have to know how to write to broadcast, though, yeah. I believe. I, I believe being a good writer would make you a better broadcaster. Oh, absolutely. But... The, the payoff is in the video, at least if I'm representing the way they see things accurately. So I, I can understand there'd be less interest in pouring resources into, into writing. And as you know, there's, it's very different writing for a newspaper and a magazine and also writing for broadcast. And I still sometimes struggle you know, I, I do you know, some script stuff because my instincts are, this is my magazine self having to turn myself into something that isn't the most natural thing in the world. So I really have to think about it. Is writing for Sports Illustrated like driving a Corvette? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, you, you go, I have an idea, fellas, and they go, yep, away you go. Like driving a Lambo. Okay, there um, you go. Yeah. Okay. It I was shot too low. <laughs> it was the greatest job anyone could hope to have. Did did you get I got excited when I saw your name on the cover. You know? This yeah. story by was it as exciting as I think it is? Oh, oh yeah. Cover of Sports Illustrated is oh, yeah. like holy shit. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, it was something. I, I subscribed when I was a kid, and I remember you'd open the brown envelope quickly because you, you know you'd get it before it hit the stands, 
and you pull it out and look at the cover and go, oh, yes, they did a hockey story. In 20, I was there 20 years, I guess. Wow. And it was spectacular. And the editing was so on point. And when you had a disagreement, it was because you had a professional disagreement, not because I'm right and you're wrong. I mean, the, the editors were, were top shelf. Uh, and the budgets, top shelf, certainly the, the first decade I was there, because all that mattered was doing the best story possible. The support from administrative people was top shelf. We don't want you to worry about other stuff. You do your job, and you know we'll you know we'll worry about other things. Have they maintained those, those standards? Because uh, I assume the budgets have yeah, have not yeah. been maintained, yeah, yeah. and I don't know how you can maintain standards but if you don't maintain nir- budget. That, that's nirvana for a writer, well, isn't it? When it, it was. Any performer to say just do we'll look after yeah. it. I mean that's it was, but they they still you know I I don't write for them very often now. Once every year or two, depending on, was a couple of years ago, and some of your older listeners might remember a guy named Boris Onoshenko. No. No. Uh, he was the Soviet modern pentathlete who rigged his epe to record touches at the 76 Olympics. Holy shit. It, it wow. was the greatest cheat in Olympic history where we get obsessed with Ben Johnson he was actually he rigged his epee so when wow. he, he touched oh point to the Soviet well he got caught out by the Brits a guy named Jim Fox who passed very recently so I wanted to do this story and this is a few years ago and yeah go ahead and do it now, Boris Onoshenko was still alive. He's Ukrainian, living in Kiev, or Kiev. My daughter, who speaks Russian, and in the past year or so, decamped uh, from Moscow, where she worked as a journalist, got him on the phone, where he spent 45 seconds with her telling he wouldn't talk, but said enough that I used that in the piece. And I ended up writing about writing 5,000 words. So let's recap. So I'm writing about the Soviet Union, a country that no longer exists. I'm writing about a modern pentathlete that nobody understands that sport. I'm writing 5,000 words on this, persu- on this subject. So as the kids call it, I'm doing clickbait. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But this is the beauty of Sports Illustrated. You can do 5,000 words on a guy no one's, can't even pronounce his name. (laughs) And yet, if it's a good story, and it was, because my daughter ended up finding it, calling and interviewing his teammates uh, on the team who didn't like him at all. Huh. Wow. I mean, so... And I'm sure you can find the story online if you want to dig through it. But this is the what Sports Illustrated was and still is from time to time. If there's a story that matters, and this one mattered to me, go ahead, 
do it. How do you rig an epee? An epee being a, yeah. a fencing sword. Yeah. Like the, if it's 1976, I assume it's yeah. not anything to do with electronics. Yeah, he, it he, is. Yeah. yeah, he had you know figured out a way that it would beep. You know, it would record beep, a touch. Right? Light, light would go on. Yeah, yeah boom. Wow. You know, there yeah. you go. I suppose they did have electricity in 1976, <laughs> didn't they? Yeah, in, the, in the Soviet I Union? So. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Intermittently. <laughs> did, do, you have a, do you have a favorite story? Do you, do, does one stand out from Sports Illustrated, Michael, where you got the magazine you thought, oh, boy, yep. Um, one that will resonate with your listeners was in 2014, I did something on... Uh, the Too Many Men penalty that, yeah. from 79. Yeah. And uh, spoke to many of the Canadians, spoke to many of the Bruins, um, talked to Don Cherry, among others. And, and, and it was a layered piece because I see a lot of similarities between Boston, a city that I've spent a fair bit of time in, and Montreal. I mean, there, there's both a religious element to both cities. I mean, we have a big cross on the mountain, and they have their whole Calvinist history. Uh, the drivers are very similar. Uh, neither use directional signals. <laughs> uh, they're both older cities. So, I mean, there's a lot there. Um, so I see these kind of as sister cities. And, and the way the piece evolved... Structurally, you could do it quite easily as, as, as the time and weave the story through that and how that all worked together. And what I remember is, of course, uh, Jean Rattel uh, taking a penalty. And, and Cherry tells me, that, he said, that was the first time I had a really bad feeling. Because Jean Rattel was a priest, and I think it was a hold or a hook on Ganey. And if they're calling Jean Rattel, who might have had two penalties all year, that's not good. And this was in the second period. So, of course, the too many men penalty at the end when, you know, the, the rink looked like the carry at rush hour. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it all worked out. So uh, a piece that worked very well structurally, as was the piece on Crosby's Golden Goal in 2010, um, because I basically broke down the last eight seconds of the game and weaved stories of other people, including the referee, uh, Bill McCrary, in it. Highly recommend you go online and find either one of these. We um, are going to continue with uh, Michael Farber here in a moment. I want to ask Michael about... Um, a piece that I watched just last night again for, I think, the third time, which is the uh, absence of a Stanley Cup in this country. But we have to uh, take a moment to thank Sugar Sammy. Our very good friend Sugar Sammy is on tour. I just uh, As we're recording this, he was uh, in Winnipeg last night doing his bilingual show for a good chunk of the French community in saint Boniface. Uh, in Winnipeg, and he's taking it on the road. I'm going to see him in Vancouver uh, this coming Saturday. 
And will it be a bilingual show it's in Vancouver? It's going to be a bilingual show in Vancouver, in Calgary. He's taken it across the country. Is there a pocket of uh, Francophones in Vancouver? Yes, there uh, are. Or in the area? There's, yeah. a big, uh, there's a big French immersion community in, uh, in Vancouver, and he's on the road. Ted and I saw him. Uh, when did we see him, Ted, at the... Uh, Last spring. Last spring. Yeah. And at the Maison Kelka shows. Yeah, at the Maison Kelka shows. It, it was at the uh, the Separatist uh, Theater it there. Was, the, it was at UCAM, was yeah, it not? Yeah. Like yeah. I said, the, the Separatist, Separatist Theater. Theater. <laughs> well, UCAM is not a, a hotbed of Canadian flags. No, and I think no. he deliberately chose that theater. Yeah. yeah you was, got the dates there, Ted? I got an email from uh, Sammy's publicist, Lisa Lee. Yeah. Uh, uh, talking about nearly 100,000 tickets sold for You're Gonna Rear 2. Winnipeg sold out. Edmonton sold out. Calgary sold out. Vancouver almost sold out. Moncton, one show sold out. Second show almost sold out. Toronto almost sold out. Montreal, good luck. <laughs> All of 2023 and January 2024 shows sold out. New shows have been added for February 2024, but uh, hop to it. Because those are going to go fast as well. Go to sugarsammy.com. He's also uh, touring in the States in 2024. You saw him where? In Seattle or, or San, Fran- uh, San Francisco? San Francisco, yeah. I assume he doesn't do a bilingual show there. No, he does yeah. not. But he knocks them dead. He's slowly building an audience in the States. My good friend Matt Kundal saw him last night and posted on Instagram, Instagram uh, last night. Uh, Sammy was masterful yet again in reading the audience and striking a balance with everybody in attendance. There are moments when he is in retros- introspective and asks the audience about their lives and their experiences. And even though he wasn't in, in Quebec, um, he hit the ball out of the park. I'm telling you, if you're looking for an unbelievable and very unique Live comedy experience, Sugar Sammy is the way to go. Did we give the website? Sugarsammy.com. Okay. I guess I wasn't listening to you. I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry, dear. So what's new? (laughs) (laughs) I work and I slave, (laughs) and what thanks do I get? I wish I were dead. Back to you. Mike Farber is our guest. Mike, I was talking to, by the way, am I allowed to call you Mike? I mean, I'm allowed to call I you Mike, have but an, do you and prefer Mike or Michael? Uh, both. Okay. And, and I used to be in print as Mike. Yeah. And then I call somebody and say, uh, Can you make it? This is Mike Farber. And yeah. they say, uh, how are you doing, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> so I changed to Michael. But I have to remember which friends know me as Mike and which is Michael. Yeah, not to be... Not Either be, is fine. Not to be confused with the Mike Farber who reviews hot cars on uh, some website. Or wow. some oh, last, yeah? last night when I was online uh, looking for some of the stuff I wanted to talk to you about, I, a Mike Farber at a Hot Road Rod magazine came up Ooh. or something. This is not that Mike Farber. Like one of the things I watched last night was this, uh, I, I love this piece. Um, it's so beautifully written. As I've told you before, I'm such a fan of the work you do uh, with the documentaries because documentaries are elevated by beautiful and elegant writing, which is what you you bring to it, and you elevate these pieces on TSN. There's not a lot of compelling content, I my personal opinion, on Canadian television anymore. And this one was on the the lack of a Stanley Cup in this country, and I thought it was fascinating. I'd like to talk to you about that. Do you think, can you point to one thing is it expansion? Is it because there's too many teams? Is it taxes? What 
What has happened that Canadian teams keep getting close but shitting the bed? Well, they've gotten really close, and we have to keep that in mind, yeah. including Montreal in the bubble year, which was if Toronto hadn't furballed that first round yeah. series, and uh, we would have never been talking Furball. about the Canadians. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. come on, three-one yeah. <laughs> lead. Yeah, I mean, Carey Price was great, but please, yeah. I yeah. mean, Toronto—that was ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but. It's well, you sounded like a real Montrealer there, Mike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, it's funny because I have no problem with the Leafs. Oof. However, the Blue Jays bother me no end. Really? really? Interesting. Because they voted for contractions, That's right? Yeah. To get yeah. rid of the Expos. Right. So, yeah. you know, we carry a grudge yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. a lot of Montreal fans. Yeah. Right? Montreal yeah. baseball fans don't forget that. Yeah. No, we don't. So, Sorry, I've taken you off topic there. No, that's fine. I love going off topic. <laughs> but it's, I think a lot of it is just circumstance that if Edmonton had managed to win a game seven in Carolina... In 06, if uh, Martin Angelina's goal in game six in Calgary had counted, and I think it crossed the line and we had better replay now, we wouldn't be having these discussions. So uh, to a degree, uh, I think maybe people don't want to play in Canada because of the spotlight and the scrutiny but for the most part, I look at individual teams and management decisions. So I'll ask you, Terry, as a Vancouverite of recent uh, vintage, you know, what does Vancouver have to do or the Canucks have to do with the Ottawa Senators? How are they related? And how are uh, you know, the Maple Leafs related to the Winnipeg Jets? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, we still have the Queen on the twenty. Yeah. But, oh, by the way, when you are over 65, you don't have to take a citizenship test. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. <laughs> and I, I want to tell people okay. that I would rush in and get it, but I, I was very prepared to take it because I always said, yeah, I know who that woman is on the 20. It's Celine Dion. <laughs> so, by the way, when do we get Buddy on the 20? When's he coming? Uh, King I'm, Charles III. It's, it's, it's on the way. Is Gene it? Wilder's on the five. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I think it's more circumstance and poor management. Yeah. Uh, than anything else. I also don't, uh, and pardon me, Tara, for, for interrupting, I've always, uh, or I have never been a part of that crowd who says, uh, okay, well, if your team's out, you have to hope for whatever Canadian team is still no. in there. I'm not Nonsense. on board with that at all. Neither don't tell I. a Calgary fan that they got to cheer for the Oilers because Edmonton's still in yeah. there. No. Well, well, look at Pittsburgh. Sidney Crosby, the most prominent Canadian player of the last 15 years. Why wouldn't you rate... For Root for him. 100%. Just because he happens to be wearing black and gold. Yeah, I mean, that's a, you, you look at certain teams, New Jersey had a, at a certain point, had a high percentage of Americans. Okay, but other teams were 75% uh, Canadian. Why wouldn't they be your team? And oh. I don't even think of it that way. I find that if there are two teams playing and I don't have an emotional stake in either, I will intuitively support or cheer for one team or the other. Yeah. I don't base it on anything other than intuition. At some point during the game, I'll find myself rooting for one team or the other. When when I moved to Calgary, you know, I was going to be on the radio in Calgary, and I thought part of my job on the radio in Calgary is to become a Calgarian. 
And one of the things the station did was they bought me a flames. You know, I got a cowboy hat. I got a flame sweater. And, you know, they wanted me to go to a game. And I thought, I'm going to I'm gonna jump on board and I'm going to become a... And I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I, I don't know it's, if I bleed. I don't think I bleed red, white, and blue. But it's the same thing in Calgary or in Vancouver. Watching a game there is boring as shit. The team is boring as shit. The fans are boring as shit. The Aquilinis don't know what they're doing. How could I even begin to consider cheering for anybody but the Canadians? Well, when I moved here, I had to get an immersive course in Montreal. And what I did was go to the morgue, the newspaper library, and read stories. And many written brilliantly by Ted Blackman. And that's how I learned. And what's all this about? I mean, I, I could draw Montreal on stick figures, but I needed to flesh this out because I couldn't be this outsider. Now, I'm not sure I could ever be an insider. Uh, that's a, another issue. And again, it's since 79, but I'm always aware that, you know, I'm laid off the boat. But it was very important for me that if I'm going to work in this city, I can't be saying, oh, these quaint people here and, uh, oh, nice customs. And I mean, things that impressed me. I wanted to do a, a column, and I did, on the guy who called races at Blue Bonnets. Because for me, you know, on the outside, I'll exterior, you know, calling a race bilingual oh, yeah, just... That's- Blew my mind, and That's so I'm bringing fresh eyes. That's that. me too. Yeah. Hey, voici, there they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. And you know, and then it occurred to me years after I wrote the column that most Montrealers I know could do that. What they couldn't do is nine races identify nine different horses yeah. during the course of a program. That was the gift, not necessarily doing it in, in two languages. And, Who know, was he, Mike? Do you remember? Oh, I I don't. No. Wow. But a the, guy like that. Now that you brought that yeah. up, that's a legendary Montreal a guy, voice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. seriously. Yeah. Why, yeah. And why? And why don't we know his name? I don't know. Isn't that interesting? Well, I, I, can, I can't remember the name of uh, Birdie. I don't remember that guy's <laughs> yeah, name from, either. <laughs> yeah, mini golf, uh, mini putt on RDS. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder sometimes about uh, ownership and management in this country of the National Hockey League. Um you know, maybe with the exception of, you know, I'm a big, big fan of the Molson family and how they understand the tradition of, you know, what ownership requires. Jeff Molson, you know, grew up beside it, watching the tradition, he gets it. But for example, the wealth of talent that has gone through Edmonton, and they cannot seem to put it together. And the same thing was, you know, you could argue, I guess, for or against in Ottawa, with you know coaching and ownership and and let's talk about the Leafs. I mean, you know Matthews and Marner and you know they can't Canadian teams can't seem to put it together. Well, in Toronto they try and they try really hard. They invest. We were talking about investing. Yeah. yeah. They invest. They have more people doing more things in sports science and nutrition, and, and they have supported that. If there is something in the DNA, the historical DNA of that franchise, whether they just can't in pressure-packed moments, and we can go back to losing that 
3-1 series lead to Montreal? Um, I don't know. Um, but I think management there has been good, uh, better than in other places, and it still hasn't worked. I think they've got the best shot of any Canadian team right now, though, don't you? Well, yeah, once Edmonton sorts out its goaltending, uh, until it does, yeah, I would say it's Toronto also because teams in that division we see are receding. And until Ottawa and Detroit and Buffalo are ready to make the next step and Montreal has to take two steps, uh, I can see this being the the team to dominate in you know, Tampa Bay is also receding. So this should be the Leafs time. Yeah. And again, their last Stanley cup came, I believe six months after color television uh, started wow. in, uh, in Canada. Yeah, There's some old joke about the parade being in black and white. Yeah. Well, I went back yeah. and, and researched that. And I think January one sixty seven, CBC went to color and their last cup was uh, June or May of 67, whatever it yeah. ended. I would not begrudge them. as you know. I know as a Montrealer, we're supposed to hate the Leafs, yeah, and I'm not I, a fan, I, but I would not begrudge them winning. I, I lived in Toronto for five yeah. years. I have a lot of really good friends who are long-suffering Leafs fans, and I would be happy for them if yeah, it finally I would happened. Not. I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I, I just, I, I can't even stand. So you would begrudge it. Oh, yeah. big time. Yeah, I can't even look at the crest. I, I, don't even, I can't stand the Leafs. I just, it's so, how I was, you know, it's the era I grew up in. So you can take the boy out of Verdun, <laughs> yeah, but you right. can't take Verdun out of the boy. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Well, I didn't grow up in either no. city, yeah. and I've lived in both. Yeah. So, do, do you think... This is anecdotally, obviously. Do you do you think that um, Gary Bettman has an anti-Canadian bias? Oh no, no, absolutely not. Okay, absolutely. A lot of people not. accuse him of that. Well, they accuse him of a lot of things. He's really smart. Yeah, I mean, he sees the whole elephant. A lot of us see just parts of the elephant. Whether you agree with him or not, something else. Right. Uh, he can be a difficult man to like. At times. He's not a warm fella, is he? Um, no. I, he doesn't have the social skills that, say, Bill Daly, his top lieutenant, has. But he is super smart. He has... He's been on the job for 30-plus years, yeah, so the he must be doing him. something right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's made the money. Yeah. I mean, he's made the league money. Uh, it's be, When I, I started this, and you could call the Sun Life building where the NHL headquarters was... And Clarence Campbell used to answer his own phone. Hmm. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? And, wow. uh, Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Can I speak to Clarence Campbell? Speaking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. Campbell. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yes, Mr. President. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is no longer a mom-and-pop league. Yeah. Um, have they missed opportunities in my mind? Yes. Um, is the game better uh, it's certainly faster and more skilled because the people who play it are more skilled. Um, but, yeah, uh, he certainly doesn't dislike Canada. I think he saved a couple of Canadian franchises and indeed got Winnipeg back into yeah. the league. So anti-Canadian? No. No. Okay. Um, we are uh, going to stop. But we're, we're not stopping. We're just going to acknowledge we're a couple of segue. our squad. Yes. And also, um, stand by, because we're going to talk baseball here in a second. I would okay. like to talk about baseball in Montreal with Michael Farber, 
our very special guest. Right now, we want to welcome and say thank you to AccuTech Electric. We got a phone call from uh, Trish and uh, Tom uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Tom is a second-generation master electrician, and he runs AccuTech Electric, another family-run business. You know, Ted and I are big fans of family-run businesses. They've been servicing the community for over 25 years, and they called and said, we'd like to be part of the podcast. We'd love to sponsor the program. And I said, are you sure about that? Because we don't know what we're talking about when it comes to electricity. I just know the fuse box is in that box. That's all I know about it. Well, I know who to call now. There you go. <laughs> Tom and Trish. Yeah, they serve residential, commercial, and industrial uh, clients. Uh, they specialize in high-end residential renovations and new builds. And they strive to uh, have quality work at its finest. They love to help the clients save money, they tell me. Uh, they've been working on a lot of projects for lighting solutions and commercial spaces. Um, they'll analyze the space for you. They'll find a solution for you. And they'll even uh, find uh, things like hydro rebates for you. You can get hydro rebates for lighting upgrades that cover a large amount of the cost of doing an upgrade. These are the kinds of things that they can help you with. And again, as we always say about family companies, if there's any issues, the owner is a phone call away and at the counter. AccuTech Electric. You can reach them by going to the website, accutech.ca. Give them a call and they would love to hear from you. And while they're doing your electricity, maybe you want to have a little lie down. So uh, why not go to Metla Bonheur, where Terry and I were? Took uh, Ted there yesterday. Yeah, and I uh, I took uh, I took a mattress out for a test nap. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't the mattress I was taking yeah. out for the test nap. What was it? What did I buy? It was a it duvet. Was a, a duvet, That's yes. That's right. You yeah. bought a duvet, and you even got tucked in by Kevin. I did, yeah. Yes. He said, lie right down there. Yep. And he, yeah. He yep. put the duvet on, and I thought, well, that's that's very nice. And now you see what I'm saying about the way the stores are designed and how nice what the staff is. What a beautiful is. store yes. that is. I mean, yeah. you, know, I, you know, I can understand going into a... a a new car showroom going, yeah. wow, look at that. But yeah. I was doing that at the bed store <laughs> yeah. yesterday. Wow, look at that yeah. bed. That's really nice. And he asked you a lot of questions, yeah. like I said, right? Greeted us with a big smile and asked you some pertinent questions about, uh, you know, how much you sweat and stuff like that. Well, that is pertinent. Yeah. Well, yes, that was the whole was. issue. Yeah. I had a duvet or a comforter. I yes. don't know what it was before. And I was schwitzing like crazy. <laughs> and I would wake up every night in the middle of the night soaked in sweat. And yes. I, this was not comfortable. I don't want to sleep like this. Yeah. And Kevin said, it's time to upgrade your bedding tent. And I did. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So thank you, Kevin, for setting me up with that. I'm telling you, um, you spend, what, a third of your life asleep? Yep. You better be comfortable while yeah. you're doing that. And have you ever met anybody who's more knowledgeable about everything sleep? I know. Than Kevin? And a hockey was, prospect, too. Yeah, he was. He was time, an early right? hockey yeah. prospect. Yeah. yeah. This is this is what I've loved about Matlab Honor for years. Quebec-run company. They deal with Quebec suppliers, Canadian suppliers. They're really, really proud of how dedicated they are to a good night's sleep. And you can find them at matlabonheur.ca, 17 stores in and around the greater Montreal area. And the store we're talking about was the very first location 
that they opened all those years ago on Gwen Boulevard in St. Genevieve. Go to La Roulotte, have a couple of hot yep. dogs, and then go over and have a nap. Have a nap. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Did they give us? Did they give us a code? She was going to. Oh, that's it? right. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. There's uh, there's a promo code. Um, what you do if if you go into uh, Matt Dalbonner, they give uh, tell them that you were listening to the podcast and uh, you want your discount. And I'm going to tell you what that discount is right now. As soon as he finds it on yeah. his phone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Any second now. Yeah. Stand by for the yes. discount. Yeah. Um, here we go. Um, yes, it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's Terry and Ted. You'll get 10% off, 5% off promo items, and 10% off regularly priced items. Just say... Terry and Ted promo code. Oh, you could type that in online too, by the way. Is this not the slickest podcast Isn't you've ever though? appeared on? Yeah, Mike? It's remarkable. <laughs> like butter. Watching you, watching pros like you work, and you're <laughs> dropping in some Yiddish. Yeah. Schwitzing. I was schwitzing. <laughs> Always such a schwitz just, I had. Just like being at NBC. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny. Before we talk about baseball, I yes. want to go back to Gordy Howe because if I don't tell the story, yeah. I will leave the studio and regret it. Not today, but for the rest of my life. <laughs> okay, well, we wouldn't want that. That's, nope. that's Casablanca. Um, so we're having lunch in Montreal, and Gordy leans over the table and says, you want to know why I was so mean? I said, yeah, Gordy, why were you so mean? And he looks at me and says, hemorrhoids. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, hemorrhoids? He said, yeah, I had a truck that had really bad suspension. And by the time I got to the rink, I was in a really bad mood. Okay, so years go by, and I have to prepare an obituary in Gordy Howe because... As many of your listeners suspect, obituaries are produced ahead of time for prominent people. And Sports Illustrated wanted me to do that. So I called various people, including Mark Howe, Gordy's son, who scout for the Red Wings. And we had a great chat, and I didn't tell him what it was for. I said, we're doing a retrospective <laughs> on Dad. Oh, yeah. So uh, I, I said, Mark... I got to ask you something. And I tell him the story. And I said, is that true? He says, oh, yeah, you know, Dad, he's a great kidder. So he would neither confirm oh. nor deny <laughs> the hemorrhoid story. Um, but that, that was Gordy. So I, I just... <laughs> That so never you, got into the obit, I yeah, guess, right? Eh? No, it, it, it did not. I could it. not <laughs> confirm it. But uh, it's uh, but that that it was just Gordy, and I do, just needed. Do to you reflect? I, I keep. I guess it's because of where I'm at in my my lifetime. I often I often think of how lucky we are to having lived in that era. You know, I look back from you know because I'm 65. I was able to see Belleville play and Bobby Orr play and Gretzky play and. You know, I even saw a little bit of Gordie Howe, and we got exposed to all of these giant legends. Do you do you ever reflect about that, Michael, and think about having lunch with Gordie Howe? I mean, you say that sort of matter-of-factly, but that's that's really quite something. 
Well, I, every day. Yeah. Okay. Every Great. day, Terry. Yeah. And, and I think about what I've been able to see because of my work. Yeah. And even before that, I, I was going to high school in Providence, Rhode Island, and one Saturday, November of 66, last year, the original six, I took a bus to Boston and bought a scalp ticket, 100% markup. I paid $5 oh for my God. a 250 ticket, <laughs> entering at the garden upstairs and watched Bobby Orr. And the greatest thing you will ever see in your life in sports occurs when you're 15. And I would have been 15 because you still have a degree of innocence, a degree of enthusiasm that can't be replicated later on. You don't have enough life experiences. And I sat there with my mouth open for two and a half hours. So it's still the greatest thing I've ever seen you know, in a ring because watching Bobby Orr as a rookie in the original six. And I've been so lucky. You know, I, I saw a championship game in 64 with Russell against Chamberlain in the wow. Celtics and the San Francisco wow. Warriors. And I got to cover Bucky Dent. And because I'm not going to curse in a podcast. I will. Bucky fucking Dent. Dent. Yeah. Well, thank you for <laughs> picking up the, the gauntlet. Yeah. I was a Red Sox fan. I yeah. remember it very well. So, yeah. I, you know, I have been able to be the eyes and ears of people who wanted to be at that event. And I got to take that event and, and try to put it into 800 words or 3,000 words if I were writing for a magazine and, and bring that moment to people so they could see it again or see it through fresh eyes. And what a privilege. Yes. You took the word right out of my mouth. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say, what a great privilege that is. And, yeah, working for a company like Sports Illustrated and, and the company I kept there. Yeah, I bet. Oh, yeah. these were... People, Giants. just great, great, great writers. And I was just thrilled that my name was on that masthead, too. Before you get to baseball, yes. let me ask Mike one last hockey question. I have one more, too. So okay. Two, yeah, more, you know, yeah, two we, more. We could be here for hours. Yeah, you know and that, we eh? may be. That's why yeah. it's a podcast. What did you think <laughs> about the vilification of Bobby Hall when he passed away? The public vilification. This is very complicated for me because he once threatened to kill me. Uh, this was 1980. The Toronto Star had done a story on Bobby Hull broke or nearly broke living with a few cattle on his ranch and farm in southern Ontario. Uh, nothing left but these few cows and his memories and I was called into the office of uh, the editor-in-chief of the Gazette and read this story he says see this story in Toronto Star and it's a really well done story and I said yeah it's a great story he says I want you to match it essentially do the same story I said all right give me you know a little bit and let me make some calls and within three phone calls um, I learned that basically he was trying to hide money in a divorce settlement from his wife. So um, I went back to the editor and 
He said, okay, prove it. And I took six weeks. Can you imagine that? Wow. Six weeks for a newspaper at that time. I was in Winnipeg. I was in Chicago. I was in Vancouver. And I would talk to Hull on the phone. But when it became clear what I was looking at, he got very upset. And one night on the phone says, I'm going to kill you. So I wrote the story. Um, and I think the headline in the Gazette was the bumpy flight of the golden jet. And it ran across Canada, including in the Toronto Star, which was kind of funny. And I got one letter from a woman in Winnipeg that said, why didn't you write about the time that he pushed Joanne Hull down the steps of the courthouse when she had one of the babies in her arms? Didn't know about it. In that Winnipeg courthouse, I went through the documents of their divorce, and the clerk just aired my butt out. Why are you doing this? Why are you looking through uh, garbage and other people? I said, well, it's public record. And, and I remember being in the Winnipeg Jets office, and one of the, the women there, receptionist or something, oh, Bobby was the best person in the world. I remembered my birthday, and it was my kid's name, absolute charmer. Uh, so I'm very conflicted uh, about Bobby Hull. And I had to do his obit for TSN. And as I was joking earlier with Ted and Terry that, you know, I'm the goodbye guy. <laughs> because I have to say goodbye because I might be the only person who saw him play when you reach my age. And so it was very difficult to mix in everything because it was part of the record. I mean, he was an astonishing player, an astonishing player. But there was also, and he was arrested for um, domestic violence and, and these other things. So I, I ended up doing the piece and it aired. And I wasn't sure if I'd gotten the tone right because only at the end had we gotten into life outside of hockey. And I worried about it, as I tend to do, because we talked earlier about being fair, the Reggie Jackson lesson I learned. And I wasn't sure. And I, I spoke to somebody at TSN. I said, I, was I too soft? I didn't think I was too hard, but I thought it might have been too soft. And this person said, no, I think you struck the right balance. You know, you got it on record. You know, it wasn't the lead because the, why we care about Bobby Hull at all, not because of what had gone on there. We got one because he was one of the most impactful players of his era and one of the best. So uh, that's the best answer I can give you. Tim. Well, it's a fair and honest yeah, one, and that's is. what I was looking yeah. for. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, Michael, I'll, I'll move to baseball because I'm curious, you know, you're – you know the sport, you're such a fan, and I'm curious to know if you think baseball will return to Montreal. There's a lot of people that are very optimistic about it. A lot some of, deep-pocketed people yeah. who uh, are active uh, in yeah. bidding but, to get it back. No? But there, there's no prospect of the return of the Expos or whoever they would be 
without a brand new stadium, which is cost prohibitive? And do you think that Montreal can support a baseball team? And do you think there's a possibility it would return to Montreal? I always swore I would never live in a city that didn't have Major League Baseball. And here I am. Yep. Um, you and Mitch Melnick I was both. just going to say, yeah. now we're talking to Mitch yeah. Melnick. Yeah, <laughs> Mitch said the yeah. same thing to me years ago. Well, when you grew up in northern New Jersey and where there are connections to baseball, uh, my mother told stories about going to meet my father's family for the first time, and she was ignored because there was a Dodgers game on the radio. <laughs> on the radio? <laughs> on the radio. This is, you know, 48 or whenever it was. Uh, that, that's what it was. And finally, when my mother met you know, Duke Snyder, this was during the 81 playoffs, she and her, her husband came down to Philly where the Expos were playing the Phillies. And I introduced her to Duke. And her first words out of her mouth were, if you didn't swing at so many bad pitches, my first husband would still be alive today. Uh, my father died at age 29 because of heart issues. But oh my I mean, my mother knew Duke Snyder's strike zone. And I tell that wow. story because baseball was very important in our family. And as an American kid, that's the first sport you play and the first teams you invest yourself in emotionally. And for me, it was the Milwaukee Braves. And I mean, it was important. And I liked nothing better than doing the dishes after dinner and listening to a ball game at night. I'd shoo my wife out of the kitchen. You know, just you love baseball the radio. on the radio? On the radio. Yeah. It, it's yeah. a radio. Theater of the mind. Yeah, theater theater of the mind. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, and the, the great broadcasters um, know that less yeah. is more. Yeah. It, it, and, and we were lucky to have one of the best. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Van Horn put him up with anyone. I mean, he was just so good. So baseball can come back to Montreal. At some point, there will be an expansion. I'm not sure what the impetus is for baseball to grant another Canadian franchise. I'm sure the Blue Jays would prefer to have the market. Uh, there are deep-pocketed people. Uh, I would imagine that uh, a media company here who might want inventory of 162 games, and we've seen this with Rodgers and the Blue Jays, might find that useful. Oh, I'm sure would have no interest in owning the team. And, in fact, corporations, um, it, it's... The way the structure is, I mean, it couldn't be the sole owner anyway. But um, the, the spaces for a park have dried up a little bit. Excuse me. Uh, the great downtown location. And you wonder if, even if you build a great ballpark like Pittsburgh has done, in fact, that might be the best of the new ballparks I've ever been to, if they didn't win, and in Pittsburgh, after the, the novelty of this beautiful new stadium wore off, and the Pirates are right back where they started. And, and it's not a great situation there, even though they're they not drawing? No. And they haven't since their third or fourth or fifth year. 
in, in this fabulous, fabulous ballpark. And that's a pretty good baseball town historically, is it not, Pittsburgh? It's, it's been pretty good, but it, Pittsburgh's a smaller city yeah. in western Pennsylvania. So I, I, I don't know. If you had to handicap it, what would you say? <sighs> I, I really can't give you a number. I did a, a, an interview with Bud Selig in his <clears> last <throat> year during spring training. I was in... Arizona, and so we're sitting pretty much like we're sitting now, the way this was being shot. And I said, my granddaughter, who's now 10, was one or whatever, and I said, will I ever take my granddaughter to a Major League Baseball game in Montreal? And he looked at me and said, I hope so. So that's all I can give you. Ever the politician, Bud Selig, eh? Um, let's uh, take a moment here to uh, say thanks uh, to our friends at the Mersons. As a matter of fact, um, not that this matters because you can download this podcast anytime, but today um, I think we're going to Mersons. I'm very excited. We have to go and see them yes, because they we saw that yesterday yeah. we went and saw a couple of our other sponsors. Yes. And, and so Kara Merson yeah. put on Facebook, see you soon. Uh, okay, Kara, we're on our way to see you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I got to go see them soon anyway because we're into the uh, winter tire season. It's a, it's a tire change season going from summer into winter, and that is Merson's specialty, uh, tires and taking care of your tires, storing your tires. They'll also have a look at your tires and tell you how you're doing, uh, and uh, they, won't, uh, they won't try to upsell you either. They'll look no. at your tires, and if you've got another two seasons left on them, that's what they'll tell you. And you've got two seasons left on those. Yeah. But if you've got half a season left, they'll tell you that too. And if you're like me and you don't know anything about cars, like anything, you can get screwed by a dishonest mechanic like I did in the early 40s. And that's how I ended up going yeah. to see the Mersons all those years ago. Um, they are a family-run business. Again, I bring up that phrase because it's something that you don't find much of anymore where the uh, owner is at the counter. By the way, beautiful, comfortable waiting room. Generations of Montrealers have been going to the Mersons. You should too. Mersonautomotive.com. Mersonauto.com. Mersonauto.com. And last but not least, our great and good friends at Jaguar Land Rover Laval, who, as they always do, have provided me with a courtesy vehicle to Squire Terry around town. Yes. They've given me the Range Rover Evoque this time around, and uh, the first thing I've noticed about this car is that every woman who sees it goes, wow, I really like that. Mm. It's a bit of a chick magnet. Okay. It's a nice car. It's not the big, long wheelbase uh, Range Rover. It's a more compact thing, very urban-oriented. I think that's the way Jaguar markets it. Yeah. Chick magnet? Yeah. Yeah. Chick magnet? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. The the Range Rover Evoque, (laughs) it's our chick magnet. (laughs) But the best description of it that I've heard... Uh, came from Adrian McGrath, Jaguar Land Rover Laval's marketing director, when I was saying to her, like, how do I describe this? She said, well, it drives like a tank. And I think she got this from somebody else, actually. It drives like a tank, but it looks like a velvet glove. There you go. Isn't that nice? Lovely. It's a beautiful car, and they've got several uh, in their pre-owned inventory, very low mileage, and uh, big price reductions from what you'd pay for it brand new. And if you buy a pre-owned certified Land Rover from Jaguar Land Rover Laval, you get all the benefits of buying uh, the vehicle from the brand dealer. And there are benefits, believe you me. JaguarLaval.ca 
and LandRoverLaval.ca. And before we go, I curated a tweet sheet with Michael in mind. Okay. It's a sports-related tweet sheet. The tweet sheet, Mike, is something I do on my uh, daily radio show on Light 106.7 FM, and Terry and I uh, do one on the podcast. It's basically three of the funnier, and I know it's not Twitter anymore, but I can't, to me, it will always be Twitter. Three of the funnier things I find on on Twitter in a given day. And for the podcast, I curate ones that I can't use on the radio. Uh-huh. They might be a little salty. And there's only one really salty one here. Alrighty. But it's pretty good. 2016, Justin Verlander, and I didn't know this. I had to research it last night. He was robbed of the Cy Young Award in 2016. Porcello from Boston won the Cy Young Award. I think Verlander had... Uh, several more first-place votes, but two writers left him completely off their ballot. And so Kate Upton, who was, is she still his main squeeze? Yeah, Mm -hmm. Supermodel Kate Upton uh, put on Twitter, at the time, November 16th, 2016, Hey, Major League Baseball, I thought I was the only person allowed to fuck Justin Verlander. (laughs) What two writers didn't have him on their ballot? (laughs) For her. Yeah. I like this one as well, Tara. This made me think of you from (laughs) At Tree Bro. Why can't I find out anything about this superb owl? Hashtag Super Bowl. You going to watch the superb owl tonight? (laughs) The what? (laughs) And uh, this one from at Jesse Case. If baseball really wanted to get exciting, they'd let a celebrity throw out the last pitch. (laughs) (laughs) Bases loaded. Here's Danny DeVito. (laughs) DeVito gets the sign. (laughs) Kicks and deals. And there's a drive. (laughs) Uh, Michael, I, I, as Ted said, I could talk to you all day, and I, w- I wish we could and had the time. You've been very generous with your time, and I, I know you get asked to do these things all the time. You were on Knuckles' podcast. I saw you last night with John Hammond. Was it John Shannon? Shannon? Uh, yeah, uh, Shannon and uh, and Dave Hodge, and and uh, I'm glad you agreed to sit with us, Knuckleheads. And well, you know, we have a history, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, was... when, you know what? It was one. Well, I, I, it's going to sound like I'm I'm blowing smoke up your ass, and I guess I am a little bit. But it was one of the great joys for me um, when I was chosen to follow George Balkan. You don't you don't replace George Balkan. You follow George Balkan and do your best to keep your head above water. You were our sports columnist at seven fifty five. That I know everybody looked forward to it. I got. Great feedback, and I loved talking to you because you always brought, you know, your your eloquence and 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 your understanding, and you were able to make people even who didn't like sports um, understand the story of the day, and that was a great joy for both me and Ted at CJD. So it was a great pleasure to have you on. Well, thanks for the invitation. Appreciate it. Standing by, the Terry and Ted podcast has been brought to you by the UPS Store Canada. The UPS Store near you is locally owned and operated by a member of your small business community. 
Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.